Father, we're so thankful today that you have given us your word, Father. You've given us a word which is inerrant, Father, which is eternal, and it's a word we can depend on because you are a God we can depend on. You are the almighty God, a God of truth and faithfulness. You never change. And Father, thank you that as an almighty God, you've also shown us your love. Father, for in your word we find revealed to us the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one we celebrate today in the Lord's table, the one we rejoice in every day because he he is our Savior. He bore our sins. He took our place on the cross. And then he rose again, victorious, Father, over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he offers to each of us eternal life freely if we would simply trust him, Father. What wonderful love you have for us. And Father, we thank you as well that when we become your children, Father, we have the privilege of being fathered by you. You promise to direct our steps, to be with us, to watch over us, to instruct us in the way we should go. Father, you've given us all these directions and promises to help us navigate the pitfalls of life. And Father, you are ever with us wherever we go, and we're thankful for that this morning. And so, Father, we rejoice in our Savior today. We rejoice in our salvation that we have through faith in Christ. We rejoice in your goodness to us as our Heavenly Father. And, Father, we want to also today rejoice in your word. As we open your word, we discover more of the riches of your beauty and your glory, more of the riches of your provision for your children. And, Father, we pray that our hearts be ready to receive your word. Pray you'd settle our hearts this morning. Prepare us to be taught of you that we might see life through through the truth, through the truth, through the true perspective, through a divine perspective, through the perspective of our creator, that we might live life as you intended. And so, Father, we trust you will open our understanding today and be our teacher and guide. And, Father, we pray wherever your word goes out today across our nation and world, that believers would be receptive. Father, that we'd recognize that this word is an eternal word and that we sit at the feet of our creator as, we're, as we study this word and learn this word, read this word, Father, in the Bible, we find your will and your person. And, and so, Father, may we be teachable today. And may we take what we've learned and, and apply it to life. May your truth become the true uh, foundation of our lives. May we become our worldview, Father, as we see life as you intended us to see it. And so, Father, we trust you will direct today in our service that you might be glorified through our worship and our praise. And through the receiving and living out of your word, may you receive the glory and may you direct as we study together now in Jesus' name. Here in this passage, the apostle speaks of contentment. And it's a and contentment is a mentality that we all seek after, isn't it? But he speaks of this attitude of contentment really, <coughs> excuse me, in the context of the gift the Philippians gave him. For we see in this passage that we just read that the Philippians had shared in the ministry of Paul. They had sent him a gift. We know this letter was written from prison. Paul was in distress. He was in prison, and they had sent him a gift, and he mentions the fact that they, from the beginning, in the, in the ministry of the gospel, they had supported him repeatedly and in their lives. And he begins this passage in verse 10 that he rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that their care had flourished again. And notice he rejoiced in the Lord in this situation, in this event because God had led the people to support Paul in gospel ministry. And God's the one who promises to supply our needs. That was another verse we read in this, in this passage, isn't it? God is the one who supports <clears throat> his children, supplies their needs, and Paul was blessed because the saints had flourished in their giving to Paul. And God had directed them and chose them to support Paul and bless him in his work at this time. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm a little... Not choked up, but plugged up this morning. 
And what does that take to, be, to, to give to a need to someone who is in need in, in gospel service? Well, it takes a, what's required is an awareness of the need, isn't it? These Christians were Christians who were thinking of the furtherance of the gospel and the importance of, of people coming to know Jesus as their Savior. They had to be aware that there was a need to support Paul in this work. They also had to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit because God is the one who orchestrates the work of the gospel, isn't it? He sends people out, he sends laborers, he supports laborers, directs laborers, and he directs those who supports them. So they had to be sensitive to the will of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit in this matter. And then they had to have a willingness to sacrifice and give. This work had to be important enough to them that they were willing to, to give of their, of, of, their own, of their own stuff to sacrifice and give and support the Apostle Paul. And this church has had established in the New Testament a reputation. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll see they're mentioned here. Uh, this is a passage in which Paul teaches on, on New Testament giving, but he mentions here the churches of Macedonia, of which Philippians was one. In fact, it was probably the, the biggest city in the area. And he says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the, deep, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, even beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much mercy that we would receive the gift. Apparently, Paul says, wait a minute, you're in deep poverty, you're in a state of affliction, you, you don't have to give above and beyond, but they begged Paul, they implored Paul to receive this gift of verse 4 of the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And we know this is in reference to an offering that was taken for the poor saints in Jerusalem, those who were in need. But verse 5 says, and not only as we hoped had they give, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And so they had first given themselves. That's really a key point here, isn't it? They had given as God led, but it came out of a heart that was first given to God. And in reality, all gospel work starts with a heart that is first surrendered to God, a, a heart that identifies with the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us, the redeemed us, who lives within us, and continues his work. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he's not talking about two-by-fours and, and OSB. He's talking about people. I'm going to build my church. I'm going to... I'm, I'm building up the body of Christ, the members of the family of God, through faith and salvation. And that work did not just um, end when Jesus ascended to heaven. He told his disciples, you shall be my witnesses. That's, that was next on the agenda. You shall be my witnesses. And, and therefore, his work is to be carried on by you and I, isn't it? Is it simply. And so we partake in that ministry in, in and of ourselves, when we are his witnesses, we're to share Christ with those around us because the world's greatest need is to know Jesus as their Savior. Because apart from Jesus, they have no idea what life is about. Well, apart from Jesus, they are he heading for a Christless eternity in the, in the lake of fire forever and ever. And apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we become captive to, the to the, this world and this world system that we live in and are often caught up in destructive behaviors. The world needs Jesus Christ, and as Christians, we're aware of that, and that work is then carried on through our participation first by giving ourselves to the Lord. You see, missionary support begins with our own hearts and our giving ourselves to the work of the gospel, and then it extends beyond that. First, they gave themselves. That's Paul says, that's our hope. 
first giving themselves and then to us. And that willingness to give full, it came out of that heart's desire to be a witness and a light for Jesus Christ, to see the message of the gospel to go forward. And Paul commends them for that. And so this church had a reputation. It established a reputation. Going back to Philippians, Paul did mention that they had given to him once and again. And so we find here a church that was engaged in gospel ministry, first in their own hearts, and then as well with those that they had, had been led to support. And so he said here back in Philippians 4 that their care of him had flourished again. He says, not that you didn't care, but you lacked opportunity. And so he recognizes the fact that they just hadn't had the occasion to give him. They maybe had, he hadn't been around for a while. But what this indicates to us is that they were anxious to give. They lacked the opportunity. He says, you hadn't given for a while, but it wasn't because you didn't, you didn't care. It's because you didn't have the opportunity, which indicates to us that there was an anxiousness, a desire to be part of the gospel work and support him in this, in this way. You know, supporting the work of Christ, being engaged in the work of Christ personally, is really an outflow of the love of Christ. You know, one of God's primary attributes is love. God so loved the world. He proved that love at the cross. When God sent Jesus to the cross, it proves that he loved the world so much that he gave his only son to die for you and I. That's the great, and the Bible says there's greater, no greater love than a man laid down his life for his friend. But Jesus laid down his life for sinners. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says when we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's the amazing love of God And when Jesus died for sinners. And that love that Christ has for the world is seeking to rescue the world from, from hell, to rescue it from the clutches of sin, to deliver it from the, from the pitfalls of this present evil world, is a love that he wants to display through his children. It begins with a love for him, the one who died for us. It includes a love for those being reached, those who need Christ, and, and also a love for those who are engaged in gospel work. It really comes down to a love of the message, the message of grace, because God so freely gave his son to die for us. Well, in the middle of this all, Paul discusses this idea of contentment. He said, I'm not talking about this gift because I, I want I expect. He said, I'm not the typical preacher that has his handouts. That's what he's saying here. He says, I didn't, I didn't speak in regard to need in verse 11. I'm not speaking because I have my handout and I'm trying to pump you up to, to get as much money as I can. He says, I, I, I'm not worried about my support is what he's saying. I said, I would have been content with the gift or without it. Now, contentment in the Bible is a little different than what we often think is being content. You know, we often think of the concept of being content of being full and satisfied, having our needs met and a little more, or having everything in, under control in our life, nothing really distressing us. We envision contentment in the picture of a cow standing in the middle of a, of a huge pasture, shoulder deep in clover, sun shining, no flies in sight, a cool pool, pool of water a few feet away, no predators anywhere nearby, the picture of tranquility. You know, how much better could it get? But Paul here says in, in verse 11, he says, I've learned in whatever state. He says, I'm not talking about that kind of contentment that the world likes to think about. He says, I'm talking about contentment that exists in whatever state I am, an attitude of rest that is found in spite of circumstances, 
This is living above our circumstances. And he says, I've learned to do this in, in verse 12, whether I'm abased or abound, in all, everywhere in all things, I've learned to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. He says, I've learned in all things to find contentment in spite of hardship. You know, one thing this indicates to us is that when we serve Christ, we, we are exempt from hardship because this world is a hard place to live. It's full of hardship because it's in a world cursed by sin. It's filled with sinners who have departed from the living God and have not oriented to the truth of God. And that's why we experience all the hardships of life. And we forget that sometimes. It's because we've gotten away from our God. It's because in sin we've been separated from our God and we need to be restored to a right relationship with him. And that's why there's hardship in this world. Some people like to blame God for the hardships of, this, of life. But the reality is it's through one man sin entered the world and death, which is a real hardship, by the way, by sin. Man is the cause of the hardship in life. It's because we brought sin into our existence and God is, is in the, is, is in the biz, business of rescuing us from that. He wants us to, to be delivered from that, but it begins with a right relationship with himself. It begins with salvation. It begins with having our sins forgiven. It begins with being restored to a right relationship with God. And as people become children of God, we begin to rightly relate to each other in this world. That's where God, that's where God is at work. I will build my church, as I mentioned earlier. Jesus is seeking to, seeking to save that which, <coughs> which is lost. And so... So even as Apostle Paul recognized that even as the great apostle, as some would say, he still suffered hardship, in fact, even more so. He said, because we also live in a world that despises the things of God. It was, it was religious people who, who hated Jesus and put him on the cross. It was, it is, it was those same religious people who persecuted the Apostle Paul and all the other early apostles and prophets and missionaries of the day. And Jesus warned us that the world's going to dislike you. It's going to hate you just like it did me unless they respond to his love. And that's, and that's really quite interesting, isn't it? A world that Jesus loves. He created it. He came to the cross to rescue it. Gave himself in his love for us and taking all of our sins on his back on the tree was risen again. And people resent that. They hate that message. The, world, the Bible says the world calls it foolishness. And because of that, in reality, Christians who are a light in a dark world are going to even suffer more hardship than, than those who are not. It's just a part of life. And throughout the history, we see that. The apostles lived, lived persecuted in lives of hardship. We see Christians who have stood for Christ throughout years living lives of opposition and persecution and hardship. That was their experience. And that's why, I, by the way, today, those prosperity teachers who teach that, that God wants us all to live in prosperity and wealth and health and happiness and, and so on, just don't have a biblical message. No, that is the message for heaven. God's going to accomplish that someday where we're going to be at eternal rest when we're free from this, this sin-cursed world. But in the meantime, when we're shining as lights, we're going to live a life of hardship. And that's what Paul says here. I have learned to be content. I've learned to live above my circumstances rather than under my circumstances through, through Christ. Because that's what he said. You might ask, well, how can a person do that? Because we all get irritated, upset. Hard to find contentment when life is going in the wrong direction. When the harder I try, the behind there I get. 
And people are looking for that. This is the rest people are looking for in life. Some look for it in a, in a bottle or in drugs. Some look for it in an altered state of consciousness in, con in contemplative and meditative practices promoted by Far Eastern religions, yoga and all that stuff. That's becoming popular. While people seek to empty their minds through these various practices of everything around them. And it's amazing to me <coughs> that Christians are embracing those Eastern religious practices because they're not of God. They're not found in the Bible. They're not taught in the Word of God. And we're, we see a different answer in front of us. That answer is Christ. And if you seek to, to, to pursue one of those alternatives to forget your problems, you might as well just play ostrich. Try the ostrich approach. Stick your head in the sand because what happens when you come out of that altered state of consciousness or sober up or whatever the case is, the problems are still there. And the pain is just as hurtful. The only way we can find that is in a person. And that's what he comes to in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. That's how I can accomplish contentment. Is in, in the care of my God. I can do it through Christ. Now it's interesting here because we, we read this verse 13. It's one of those jump off the pages verses in the Bible. It's a verse we apply to many areas of our lives. The idea of God strengthening us. And it, it does apply to, to all areas of our lives because we know that we're weak in ourselves. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves or think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. We are insufficient in ourselves. We are weak as sinners, and we need God's strength in all areas of life. And God promises that strength in our lives. In fact, Jesus reminds us in John 15, without me you can do nothing. But here he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And here that the, the application of that strengthening power of the relationship with Jesus Christ is found here in this area of accomplishing contentment. It's got a specific application here, doesn't it? It's the idea of being strengthened by Christ to find the contentment that he, God intended for life. Which means that contentment does not arise from unordered life or right circumstances. Having our bank account in the positive or what, whatever it is that might bring contentment. But instead, it's everywhere in all things. And Paul lists the extremes on both ends. To be rich, to be poor, to abound, to suffer need. He says we can find that in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Because contentment really comes down to being satisfied with God and his will for us, isn't it? Contentment has to do with God's will for us today because he's watching over us. Now, when we think of the will of God, there's, it, it, there's many aspects of the will of God in our lives, isn't it? There is the express will of God in the Bible. This book we're studying today, this book we're reading from today, is the will of God. And we, as God's children, are told to follow it. It starts with salvation. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants to save us, first of all, to bring us into his family so he can father us. It begins through faith in Christ and we having our sins forgiven. And being assured of the gift of eternal life because Jesus paid it all on the cross. But then as God's, Christ, God's children, we follow God's word in everything. See, the Bible isn't intended to be you know, an alternative way to live. It's not a book we go to and we have a problem and then forget it the rest of the week. It's not a book we turn to and we think, oh, I wonder what God has to say on this matter. No, this is the authority. God is the sovereign king of the universe, our creator. He is our savior, and he knows how we ought to live. We're going to listen to him. You know, guys, you can identify with the fact when you get, you know, there's some new toy in the mail and you got to put it together. You, you know, we don't always follow the instructions. 
And I got one of those flat top drills for Christmas, or Blackstones, whatever they are, you know. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a big drill, comes in a small box. My kids did not assemble it for me. You think I'll try to follow the directions or will I just wing it? You know what that's like. You know, and uh, even though my wife might be reminding me very nicely to read the directions, um, you know, as Christians, we're like that too. We approach life, we're just going to wing it. We're just going to do our best. And we forget to look at the instruction book. When we have clear instructions, but it's got to be in everything. We can't be selective. God says in John 17, if any man is willing to do my will, he shall know the doctrine whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. That prerequisite is to be willing to do his will. God, you know best. Father knows best. And thus we have the word of God as in the word of God we find the will of God and specifics, you know, things that we are to do, we are not to do, the way we ought to look, the way we view things and so on. And the will of God also applies to, um, in our areas of life to what God has for me in my life. You know, especially as young people, you think about who am I going to marry, a job, and sometimes locations. And, you know, we have those big decisions that we seek the will of God. And God has a will for us in, in those big decisions of life and throughout our lives. And the will of God also has to do with our gifts, by the way. Because God in the church, when, he, when we come to Christ as Savior, he, he gifts us with certain gifts and tal- talents to contribute to the body of Christ, to the family of Christ. And we all have a responsibility in that body to exercise the gift. It's God's will that we take the talents and gifts he has given and contribute to the, to the family of God, to the church of God, to the work of God. We have, a, we have a responsibility. We're all uniquely different, but that's God's will is that we carry out the talents he's given us. And we see in the scriptures the parable of the talents, and, and God calls it wicked to ignore the talents God has given us and harbor them rather than use them for his glory. Well, the will of God also has to do with how all that works out in my life, doesn't it? How it, li- how it works out day to day. Living the word of God, following it implicitly. Seeking God's will in the big decisions of life. Living a life of service and ministry for his glory. Walking by faith in him day to day. God works out his will in our life because he is the one who's taken responsibility as sovereign God to direct our steps, to watch over us, to guide us with his eye and so on. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lead not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. God has that responsibility. Contentment really comes down to, are we content with the will of God? Are we satisfied with what God has for me? It begins with a, with a submission to God's word, obviously, but it continues down to daily life. Am I satisfied with where with God has me right now in the moment? Now, there's things that disrupt that, and one of those is sin, disobedience, disregarding our God, but are we content with what God has for us? Let's turn, if you will, over to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, which also speaks of contentment. Because in the Bible, it seems like contentment is often connected to material things. It's often materialism that can disrupt our contentment, and the Bible seems to address that here in our lives. Verse 5 of Hebrews 13 says this, Let your conduct, that is your way you live, be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man can do to me. And so God says, 
Things that disrupt our contentment is covetousness, the desire for stuff. We call it materialism. It's really wanting something outside the will of God. That's what, he's, that's, that's what disrupts our covetousness. I mean, excuse me, our contentment. He says instead, be content with what God has for us today. And it's not that we don't have things that we'd like to attain, uh, obtain. Because God gives us richly all things to enjoy. That's a promise he's given us. The key, the, the, the principle here is being content with whatever God does provide for you. Because he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice that contentment is once again tied to the present ministry, the life of God in our lives. Well, another aspect here mentioned that can disrupt our contentment is people. He, and then notice the verse, he says, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. And sometimes it's people in our lives that disrupt, can disrupt our, our contentment unless we entrust them to God. Sometimes it's just people that annoy us. Sometimes it may be persecution. It could be, a, a, you know, a bad boss, a threat of a loss of job. All those things can, dis can disrupt contentment. But God says it doesn't have to be because I am with you. I've got your back. I'm watching over you. I had a situation in life once where a, where a boss was getting after me, trying to take my job away. I'll make a long story short, about the time when that was about to occur, he was fired. And even the unsaved in my workplace recognized, I think someone's watching out for you. And it says, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. You see, we don't have to fear what man can do, do to us. We don't have, because we find our contentment in God. So whether it's covetousness or the circumstances around us, we can find contentment in a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. How about 1 Timothy chapter 6 also mentions contentment. Let's see what this, what the Bible has to say in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, if you want to turn there with me. Here, verse 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all e kinds of evil, for which some, having strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So once again, we find here the love of money, that description of covetousness, can destroy our contentment. And he said, instead, he says, seek godliness. Notice he connects godliness. The Bible tells us to be holy as he is holy as God's children. We're to reflect the person of God in our lives. That's what it means to be godly. And I think it indicates in this passage a priority of pursuit. Are we, are we pursuing Christ versus pursuing the cares and, and riches of this world? Are we attached to Christ or are we attached to this world? Are we loving Christ rather than loving and longing for the things of this world? You see, godliness brings balance to the things we have in life. It's not that we can't have. It's just that we cannot allow them to ensnare us. The love of evil which pierces us through. Verse 17 says this about, on this subject. It says, command those who are rich in this 
present age, not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. The key is not trusting in those riches, not allowing them to come between us and God, not allowing them to capture our hearts, and that's what so often happens in life. Is when God gives good gifts, we become so enamored with the gifts and the pursuit of stuff that we forget the giver. And we don't use them for his glory or in a way that honors him. Instead, he says here to be, be content with our basic needs met, food and clothing. Be content. God's going to supply. And that's the mentality that God is after in our lives. It comes down to our faith, does it not? Are we willing to trust him? Are we content with God's in control? in my life today, what he has for me today. And that's challenging because there are many adverse circumstances that will quickly disrupt that contentment. But we can step back, take our eyes off our problems, put them on our faithful God, and we can say, okay, God, you're still in control. You haven't lost sight of my care. You're watching over me. You'll provide for me. And those times it may be a struggle, we can find that, that attitude of contentment everywhere and in all things no matter what my situation is, because God promises to provide for me. If you want to turn to 1 Kings 21, we find an illustration here of what covetousness can do to us. Back in the Old Testament, a familiar story here in the life of Ahab First Kings 21, in verse 1, follow along, you'll get the message here as King Ahab wanted something, and that became his demise. Verse 1 says, and it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house, for I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth and money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. Now we don't like to hear no when we want something, do we? And Ahab went into his house, verse 4, sullen and displeased because of the, he was pouting, wasn't he? Because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he had, he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would not eat no food. This is what an adult tantrum looks like, isn't it? He's pouting. I'm just not going to eat. I'm not going to eat because I don't like what's going on in my life. Slap him with a wet sucker. <laughs> so Jezebel, his wonderful wife, came to him and said to him, I've got a solution. Why are you so sullen and you eat no food? No, he's not content. That's the problem, isn't he? He's not trusting his God, to supply what he needs. And maybe God's will was no. So he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he said, no, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, you now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Notice his happiness is conditioned on getting what he wanted. And she's going to take care of it for him. And so she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with her seal, and sent the letters to the elders and nobles who were dwelling in the city of Na with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast, and seat Naboth with high honors among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king, then take him out and stone him that he may die. 
So they did that. I won't read through it all. Verse, in the next few verses, verse 14, they sent to Jezebel and said, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned, was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And Ahab got up and took it, and he got what he wanted, and the word of the Lord comes to him in the next verses, and he's, God's going to require his life for this event. You know, we know by experience that you know, getting, always getting what we want doesn't always satisfy, does it? Because we always want more. We think, maybe I should have got the new and improved model. For a few dollars more, I could have got the better one. I could have got more features. And so on. Interesting verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 says, He who loves silvers will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. It's emptiness. Because the Bible tells us only one thing satisfies in life. And it's a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Well, we can enjoy God's blessings. We all have our, our pastimes and our toys and nice in our homes and, you know, whatever it is that we, we enjoy. Some of us enjoy polishing our hubcaps of our newer cars or whatever God gives us. But we're to enjoy them for, your, for his glory. We're not to enjoy them apart from recognizing his giving hand because Jesus is the only one that's satisfied because he changes not. That new grill I got is going to rust out someday. The car I have is ready to fall off its wheels, by the way, out there, so don't follow too far behind me. You're not, if you see me on the highway. You know, things rust, they deteriorate. And we don't become satisfied with silver because they don't satisfy. They don't, they don't, they deteriorate. They, the joy is gone after a short amount of time. I took notice when my daughter moved to Florida some years ago that, you know, everybody, everybody goes to Florida because they want to go to the beach. You know, get the sun and the sand and in the waves. And you find out that people who've lived there for more than a few years never go there. The luster wears off. They hardly go there. A few do. I'm not saying no one does. But they, have, they rarely go there. It's not an everyday thing for many. And that's how it is with stuff, isn't it? But the one that never changes, who never fails us, who has, as we've seen in the passage going back to Philippians, as we've seen peace and, and, and joy and contentment, he gives every day because he watches over me. And so Paul reminds us here in Philippians chapter 4 that contentment, the real contentment, being satisfied in life, finding that resting spot, is found in knowing a God who never fails me nor forsakes me, who's with me always, who watches over me, who promises to provide my needs. He takes care of me. And even though he may allow in my life adverse circumstances, harshness, difficulties, challenges, he is ever faithful. And he will help me navigate through. And I can rest in his care, in his arms, and I can be content because he hasn't forgotten me. And it's so much easier in life to live on that plane with that perspective over your circumstances because you have a God who is sovereign over your circumstances than it is to live under them. What labor and travail we go through in trying to escape all those adversities of life when in reality, Paul says here, I can do all these things through Christ 
He strengthens me. The word strengthen has the idea of being enabled, empowered, given the ability to live in spite of my circumstances and find contentment in Christ. So Paul says, I've learned this in this passage. I've learned in verse 11, in whatever state I am, to be content. I've learned. It was a learning for him. It's a learning for us. But we learn it when we begin, when we see the faithfulness of God. We see his love for us. We see his promises that, that are meant to guide us each and every day and his ability to keep them. Because he has a plan for us, for our lives. He has a will. It's expressed in his words explicitly. It's lived out in daily leading in the power of his Holy Spirit. And he watches over us along that path. Doesn't, doesn't test us above what we're able. Promises to preserve and protect us along the way. We're in his hands. And that's where contentment is found. Not found in knee-deep clover in a big field with all of our tranquility. For me, it might be a fishing boat on a crystal clear lake with a walleye on every cast. It doesn't fall in those things. It's found in a person. His great love for us. His unending faithfulness to us. And even today when we celebrate our Lord's table, we celebrate the proof of that love. God proved he loved you. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Very, very well-known verse. Some people might say, well, How? is that he gave his only begotten son. And the message in, in those few words, packed into those few words, are tremendous and powerful because God loved undeserving, rebellious sinners so much that he wanted to rescue them and took his sins upon his back on the cross. And we celebrate that. He's proven that love. It should be easy to trust the love of God and, and his care for us and find contentment in him in our daily lives when he's already proven it in the greatest way possible on the cross. When he became the Lamb of God who took away our sins. When God laid on him the iniquity of us all. When he took our place in our hell. And it is an amazing thing to sit back as Christians and realize if you're a child of God, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, that you'll never experience the wrath of God in eternal hell. Because Jesus took that wrath for me. He took my place on the cross. He died for my sins so that I could be free from not only the ensnaring power of sin in my life, but from that, from that condemnation of eternal wrath. I'll never experience what Jesus experienced for me if you've trusted him as the Savior. So as we celebrate the Lord's table today, may we not only celebrate that great love that was shown to us at the cross, but be reminded as well of the great love that he shows to us every day as we find our all in all our contentment in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for you know, this reminder, a simple reminder, Father, where, where contentment is found. Father, that you do have good plans for your children, and one of those is to find rest in spite of the challenges of life and the difficulties of life and the harshness of life, Father. Because of sin all around us, Father, we can find that stability, that calm in the storm in a relationship with you and a faith trust in you because you are faithful to keep your promises to your children. And, you as a faithful father seek to shelter us and watch over us and protect us, Father, that you strengthen us in our days to find contentment in you. We're thankful for that. Father, help us to learn this concept just like Paul learned it. Paul said, I have learned and it's left for us to learn to find that rest, that faith rest, that trust 
in your care for us. And Father, today as well, we want to remember our Savior, Father. You encourage us to do in your word to remember you as often as, as, we, as we do and, and to celebrate uh, this in remembrance of you. For that's what this feast is. It's, it's, it's a reminder of Jesus, the one who died for us, who gave us all for us, who took his, our place. And Father, the elements represent his broken body and his blood that was spilt under the weight of our sins because he died for us, Father. And, and may we remember him and honor him and rejoice in him as we're reminded of his love today. We just give those thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.